The Good and Beautiful Community. Chapter 1. The Peculiar Community. When I was growing up, my family attended a very serious, cold, and orderly Methodist church. The preacher had been there for 25 years, and over time, the church reflected his personality. He was a scholar with strong speaking skills and dry humor. He particularly loved elegance and order. For years, I wondered why there was a telephone, an olive green telephone, right next to the massive wooden chair the pastor sat in during the service. One day, a child became whiny and started to cry during one of the quiet, reflective moments of prayer, and I opened my eyes and saw the pastor pick up the phone. Within seconds, an usher came up to the pew where the child was misbehaving and escorted the mother and the child out of the sanctuary. I got the message. Children must be seen, but not heard. This made a big impression on me as a child. The narrative was embedded in my little brain. The church was a solemn place. No one spoke to one another during the service. I remember getting shushed a lot. Only afterward, during coffee time, did people interact. My parents came for the service to sing the hymns, enjoy the choir's anthem, and listen to a good sermon. But as a child, none of that mattered to me. I didn't like the hymns. I could not understand the Bible, much less the sermon. The pews were uncomfortable, and everyone had to be quiet and still, which is not natural to children. Possible, but not enjoyable. The only part I liked was when we had communion, four times a year, because I got a snack, albeit a small one consisting of a cube of bread and a tiny cup of grape juice. We went less and less as I got older, and I was thankful, and eventually I stopped going altogether except on Christmas and Easter. Mom insisted. I had no idea I was developing a theology, an understanding of God, and communal life, but I was. Those early experiences shaped how I thought about God. God hovered above his neat and orderly, somber and sad followers. I could not wait to get home, take off my clip-on tie, and run to the field to play baseball with my friends. The next Sunday I would pray, ironically, that something would come up and we would not have to go to church. Spending time with God's assembled people was, in my young mind, a dreadful thing. Though I might have been too young to notice, there did not seem to be anything special about this gathering of people. Church people were just regular people doing their religious duty for an hour a week. Then, when I turned 18, things began to change. My soul was restless, and I was on a search for meaning that eventually led me to give Jesus a chance. He reciprocated and started changing my life. Within a few months, I was reading the Bible daily, praying a lot, and hanging out with two other Christian guys. When I went to college, I knew that it would be hard to continue my faith on my own, so I prayed for some support, and it came in the first week I was on campus. A guy I played sports against in high school noticed my fish necklace, asked if I was a Christian, and invited me to come to a Bible fellowship. It was a Wednesday evening I will never forget. I walked into a room in one of the dorms and was confronted by several alien things. First, the room was packed with students. In my church, the youth group was very small. Second, they all seemed excited to be there. I had never seen anyone excited about church. Could you call this a church? Third, it was a gathering of dissimilar people. There were some jocks and academic types. There were males and females, blacks and whites. There were some very pretty girls and some handsome guys, and some not so pretty or handsome. The church I grew up in comprised all-white, middle-class people between 40 and 60 years old. Finally, the thing that stood out about the makeup of this gathering was the number of handicapped people, most of them in wheelchairs, but some of them with mental challenges. What is going on? I thought to myself. A few minutes later, the leader stood up and welcomed everyone, and the room felt very warm and inviting. I felt what I could only describe as goodness in the air. 
Then a young man and a young woman led us in a time of praise and worship music, with only a guitar and their voices. It was something I had never seen. Fifty people jammed into a room, singing loudly and joyfully, some with hands lifted in the air as if they were in a moment of ecstasy. Some jumped up and down, some clapped, and everyone in the room, except me at that point, seemed entranced, in a good way. After twenty minutes of praise singing, the leader, a senior, taught from the Bible. He was very transparent as he spoke about his own life and struggles, and he was also very gifted as a teacher. He made the Bible make sense to me and helped connect it to my life, to things that mattered to me, things I was struggling to understand. Afterward, I thanked the young man who had invited me. He asked if I would come back, which I affirmed without hesitation. I did not know why at the time, but I would later discover that I had just witnessed something my soul was designed to experience, a good and beautiful community. They were not perfect, the singing was not professional, but good enough. Nor did I suddenly want to become best friends with everyone in the room. The guy next to me really needed to take a shower. Perfection, elegance, talent, and performance did not draw me, but the fellowship, the togetherness, the unity and diversity intrigued me. These people were very peculiar, and I liked it. True Narrative Christians are Peculiar I first came across the idea of the peculiarity of God's gathered people from a passage in the King James Bible. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a, pe a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 I love the word peculiar. Dictionaries define it as distinctive, odd, strange, and weird. In a word, peculiar means different. Different from the ordinary, the common, from everyone else. Christians are peculiar in that they are different from everyone else. But are apprentices of Jesus really so different? I believe we are, or at least we ought to be. For example, if I, by the power of the Spirit, begin telling the truth in my life, I will become an oddity. If I can learn to slow down, live without being ruled by anger, and actually pray for people who try to cut me down, I will be considered weird because this world does not work this way. Only people who are steeped in the kingdom of God can begin living this way. There are far too few. To be sure, there are non-apprentices who tell the truth, live without anger, and can be nice to people who are not nice to them. Christ followers do not have exclusive rights to the virtues. The difference is in how and why we live this way. We do so because we are following the example of Jesus, our teacher, and are being led by the Holy Spirit, our strength and comforter. And we are living in the strong and sustaining kingdom of God. We have from the very beginning. How Christians are different. In an early Christian document known as the Epistle to Diognetus, written around 120 or 200 AD, the author wrote a response to some propaganda circulating in the Roman Empire. People had spread false rumors about the Christians, saying that they were a dangerous, secret society filled with bizarre behavior. People were saying slanderous things about Christians, such as they practiced cannibalism, because during communion they ate the body and blood of Jesus. The epistle is believed to have been written by a man named Athenagoras. In one important section, the author describes how Christians are alike and different from others. The difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. 
Christians do not live in separate cities of their own, speak any special dialect, nor practice any eccentric way of life. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, each man's lot has determined, and conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing, diet, and other habits. Nevertheless, the organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable, and even surprising. For instance, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior there is more like transients. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in the heavens. They obey the prescribed laws, but in their own private lives they transcend the laws. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering death they are quickened into life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer stripes as evildoers. I find this quote fascinating. Athenagoras spells out the ways Christians were the same as all people, as well as the ways they were peculiar. In outward ways, they were no different from anyone else in the Roman Empire. They lived in the same homes, wore the same clothes, and ate the same food as the average Roman citizen. They obeyed the laws. No one accused them of being thieves, of not paying their taxes, or of harming others. Athenagoras is saying, we're just like you. And yet they were different. They obeyed earthly laws, but lived by higher laws. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say to you. They were members of the Roman Empire, but this world was not their home. Their citizenship was in heaven. They endured suffering well and even blessed those who cursed them, as their teacher taught them to do, and as he himself did. I think my favorite part of the quote is where Athenagoras writes, For the good they do. This is an easily overlooked point. The good they do. It is no small thing to do good, especially in a world in which there is so much wrongdoing. I suppose you could say that it was the good they did that got them into such trouble. It was, and is, peculiar to do good things for no good reason. People get suspicious. Despite the false accusations and the persecutions, Christianity not only survived, it actually flourished. According to secular historian Rodney Stark, Christianity grew exponentially from its inception at the astonishing growth rate of 40% per decade. Figure 1.1 gives a clear illustration of the rapid growth. What can account for such a growth rate, especially given the danger involved in being a Christ follower? I have heard many explanations, but the one that I find most appealing is that the lives Christians were living were so winsome that others simply wanted to have what they had. The same is true today. Several years ago, I recruited a young woman to play tennis for our team at Friends University. Her father said to me on the phone, Is your college one of those places that beats people over the head with the Bible? because we have not raised her to be religious, and we are concerned about that. I told him that we never beat people with anything, being Quaker and all. But I did tell him that there were some wonderful Christian people she would be exposed to. He was fine with that. He just wanted her to have freedom of choice, and I assured him she did. A few months after being at the school, she noticed the vibrant lives of many of the students on our campus who were followers of Jesus, but never pushed anything on her. I never once engaged in a conversation with her about God or Jesus or the Bible, but she did come to our campus fellowship. She went home over Christmas break, and when she returned, she said, I wanted to tell you that I gave my life to Jesus during the break. After much rejoicing, I asked her, What made you want to do that? And she said, After seeing all of these people who have peace and joy and love, I wanted to have what they have. 
After 2,000 years, not much changes. A Peculiar God Why are Christians peculiar, or at least ought to be? It is because our God is peculiar. The God we love and serve is extraordinarily different than the gods humans design. When the Greeks and Romans created their pantheon of gods and goddesses, they looked remarkably like humans, often at their worst. Their gods lied and cheated and murdered. They committed adultery and punished each other out of jealousy and anger. The stories of the gods are fascinating to read. There's lots of intrigue. The god that Jesus reveals is peculiar. This god loves humans so much that he became one of them and died for them. This god forgives when it is not deserved. This God is generous, never vengeful. If the God of Jesus displays wrath, it is only because this God is good and loving and is rightly against sin because it hurts his beloved children. No one could have made this story up. There is nothing like it in all of religious literature. And that is because in all of the other religions, there is no God like the one Jesus revealed. God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's values are different. He is like a father who gets mistreated by a wayward son and aches for him to come home. That was a peculiar notion to Jesus' hearers. God is like an employer who gives a day's pay to workers who worked only an hour. Jesus shocked people with that narrative. What kind of God is this? The people must have murmured. Jesus revealed a God who was like no other God the world had ever heard of. This God was indeed peculiar. So it is not surprising that God's people would also be peculiar. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is in 1 John. It reveals the origin of Christian oddity. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. 1 John 4, 7-12 The ethic is simple. As God is, so should his people be. If we do not love, we must not know God. Because God's love was revealed among us in the person of Jesus, that we might live through him. We do what we do because Jesus is living in and through us. And notice how John stresses that God loved us before we loved God, that God loved a people who did not love or serve him. That, John said, is the kind of love we ought to give to one another. And the end of the passage drives home the point one last time. When we love, God lives in us, and his love completes us. So our peculiar God transforms us into peculiar people, people who love others, even if they do not love us in return. And so our history is strewn with odd people. The martyrs sang hymns while being executed, unheard of. Francis of Assisi left his wealthy home and walked naked out of town, put on a beggar's cloak and kissed lepers. Strange, indeed. Catherine of Genoa and her rich husband left a lifestyle that made them feel empty, moved into a modest home, and decided to, to devote themselves to the care of the sick and suffering. 
She spent several hours a day in prayer, during which she said she felt the burning flame of God's presence in her heart, and she spent twice as many hours caring for those in need, living a brilliant rhythm of contemplation and action. Weird. In more contemporary days, William Graham left his Bible college and served a small church in Chicago, foregoing seminary because he wanted to preach so badly. He later joined the staff of Youth for Christ to minister to young people. He later started preaching about morality and peace and justice, but mainly he led people to Christ. Hundreds of thousands of people. Most people know him as Billy, but to the world he is a strange phenomenon. My sister's church held the funeral of a young man who had been living an openly homosexual lifestyle, and for doing so they were picketed by members of another church who held signs that said God hates fags. It was a chilly, rainy morning. The people at my sister's church were shocked at the rage and anger of these people who claimed to be followers of Jesus. Though they were being cursed, they decided to bless the picketers. They brought out trays full of hot cocoa and offered it to them. How odd. The Quakers who lived in the United States in the 18th century came to abhor the injustice of slavery. They held a meeting in New Jersey under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and a man named John Woolman. They prayed for hours in silence. Then they decided to free all of their slaves. That is not all. They also decided that they should pay back these former slaves all of the money owed them for their labors. It was a radical idea that some suspected would bankrupt all of them. Amazingly, it didn't. Still, the whole thing ran so counter to the rest of culture, almost no one could believe it. Crazy. Shane Claiborne lives, intentionally, among the poor in inner-city Philadelphia and spends time trying to help people improve their lives. Mostly, he just loves people the kind of people the rest of the world would just as soon ignore. The young woman I mentioned earlier who gave her life to Christ after being moved by the lives of others on her campus is now living in an intentional community in a poor neighborhood with her husband and two other couples. They use their time and resources to help draw people together. Those who live in their neighborhood think they are really strange and love them for it. Their block parties give hope and joy to people who find such feelings hard to come by. Ain't that peculiar? You might even call these people maladjusted. And if you did, it would be a compliment, because they are maladjusted to the ways of this world. Of course, not every Christian is maladjusted in this way, but I think we ought to be. Professor Cornell West put it well when he said, There have always been Christians who are well-adjusted to greed, well-adjusted to fear, well-adjusted to bigotry. There have always been Christians who are maladjusted to greed, maladjusted to fear, and maladjusted to bigotry. Not all Christians are, but all Christians ought to be maladjusted to things like injustice, greed, materialism, and racism. Too often we easily become well-adjusted to these things. I know I have. It is easy to become well-adjusted to the culture we live in, the one that uses hate and violence to gain control, the one that treats people as objects for personal gain, the one that winks at immorality. Dr. West says elsewhere, It takes courage to ask, How did I become so well-adjusted to injustice? It takes courage to cut against the grain and become nonconformist. It takes courage to wake up and stay awake instead of engaging in complacent slumber. It takes courage to shatter conformity and cowardice. I agree. It takes courage to live like our peculiar God, to love and forgive the unlovely and the unforgivable. The only way we will ever find this courage is when we discover that we are a community of people who are rooted in another world. That is the subject of chapter two. Trust the leading of the Spirit. 
One of my favorite stories illustrates an important principle whose application will come back to us over and over again, especially in this book. It involves two of the leading figures in Quaker history, George Fox and William Penn. George Fox, born 1624, died 1691, was the founder of the Quakers, a Christian movement in 17th century England. Two of the great Quaker contributions are their teaching on pacifism, refusal to use violence, and equality, abolishing class distinction. William Penn, born in 1644, died in 1718, grew up in the upper class and had the best education available. At the age of 23, Penn became a Quaker, and soon after everything began to change. It was common in Penn's day to wear a sword, which was not intended to harm anyone, but was a sign that the wearer belonged to the upper class. After becoming a Quaker, Penn struggled with whether he should wear the sword. After all, it was a symbol of war as well as class distinction, two things Quakers stood squarely against. So Penn went to Fox, his mentor, to seek guidance on the matter. May I continue to wear the sword? he asked Fox. I would have expected Fox to say, no, you must get rid of it. Turn it into a plowshare and never wear anything like it again. Instead, George Fox offered a response that is a touchstone for me in the, era, in the area of Christian living. He said, wear it as long as you can, William. Wear it as long as you can. Fox was laying out an important principle in the Christian life. When it comes to our practices and behavior, we need to avoid making rules and laws and trust the leading of the Spirit. Fox did not say, don't wear it, nor did he say, it's all right, it's all right to wear it. He trusted that Penn would make the right decision in time. Had Fox given him a command, he would have robbed Penn of the opportunity to listen to the Holy Spirit, and he would have put in place a rigid standard, which almost always leads to later problems. Neither legalism nor license. In a book about how we ought to live, there is always a danger of laying down rules. In this book, we will examine the lifestyle choices and practices that some men and women make, which you may find impressive or encouraging. We will look at people in churches whose generosity is impressive, whose forgiveness is amazing, and whose witness to non-believers is inspiring. Their examples are meant to encourage us, but we must be careful not to make their practices the only way, the right way, or even the best way to live as an apprentice of Jesus. For example, I mentioned my friends Matt and Catherine, who live with two other couples in a large house. Their frugality and love for their neighborhood is very impressive, but if I were to conclude from their example that true Christians must live communally, I would be misguided. There is a tendency to turn individual, spirit-led practices into corporate laws. So I will apply the Fox principle a lot in this book. When we raise the issues of how we use our wealth, how we spend our time, or what practices might enhance our life with God, and which practices might impede that relationship, we need to remember the wisdom of George Fox. For example, during the course of this book, some of you who have financial means may be led to ask, is it okay for me to drive this car and live in this house? The last thing you should do is answer with a hard and fast rule. For example, no Christian should own a home over $100,000 or drive a car worth more than $20,000. Instead, we should say, live in it and drive it as long as you feel comfortable, as long as you feel no unease in your spirit. Some may see this as a cop-out. To be sure, there are some laws that cannot be broken without harm in our lives, such as the Ten Commandments. I would never say to a man who is having an affair, continue the affair as long as you feel comfortable. But when it comes to the many lifestyle questions we face, in terms of what we eat or drink or wear or drive, we need to think sensibly and with an ear to the whisper of the Spirit. 
The kingdom of God is not about rules, but about the goodness and confidence and laughter we discover when we let the Holy Spirit lead us. I intend to take the same position as George Fox and the Apostle Paul. I will encourage you to come to your own conclusions on these matters, under the leading of the Spirit, and to avoid turning them into laws that all others must obey, or judging those who do not do as you do. Should Christians wear jewelry, or watch television, or go to the movies, or play sports on Sundays? There are good Christian men and women who would answer no to each of these questions, and good Christians who answer yes to them. Just because there is no right or wrong answer for all does not mean that they are not worth asking. In fact, I think the process of asking the questions and listening to the Spirit in our individual lives is both necessary and inspiring. We want black and white answers, but often that is just because we are lazy and unwilling to do the challenging work of discernment. You might have guessed that William Penn gave up wearing the sword, but not right away. That, too, is instructive. As our narratives and practices change, so do other things in our lives, but not overnight. I would like to think that the young Penn learned a valuable lesson from Fox, one that he would apply many times throughout his life, and it was an amazing life. Penn later came to America and established Quaker communities, eventually leading the fight against slavery. William Penn was an amazing person in many respects, as a Christian and as a statesman. An example of how we avoid legalism and license is through the practice of soul-training experiences. These exercises are not laws that bind us, nor are they practices we can neglect if we want to grow in our life with God and with one another. They stretch us and awaken us to the leading of the Spirit without becoming a recipe with a predictable outcome. Soul Training 2 by 4 There are two essential points in this chapter. The first is that Christians are peculiar. The second is that their peculiarity comes from following their peculiar God. Put another way, as we spend time with this peculiar God, we will become more and more peculiar ourselves, but this will not happen without our cooperation. For this reason, I am asking you to do two things this week. One, spend time with God, and two, do some peculiar things. Remember, peculiar is not bad, just something different from what our culture is used to seeing. This week, I would like you to wed contemplation with action, personal piety with social justice. We need to keep a balance between spending time with God and caring for others. To lose one or the other is a common but deadly mistake. As a way of staying balanced, I would like you to do two things. Spend two hours focused on God and do four intentional acts of peculiarity. I call it two by four. Two hours with God and four acts of kindness. I will offer some guidance about how to spend the two hours, and I will suggest some things you might want to do in terms of helping others. Two hours with God. Some of you are probably intimidated by spending two hours with God, and others are thinking, that's it, only two hours. After a lot of interaction with people and careful reflection, I think this is a very attainable amount of time. It is neither too much nor too little. Of course, the two hours is a suggestion, not a law. It is something to aim for, but not something to make you feel either proud because you did it or guilty because you did not. Let me explain why I think it is attainable and offer some guidance about how to spend that time with God. How will I manage two hours? First, the two hours do not have to be done all at once. I would recommend 30 minutes on four separate occasions. Some may spend eight times of 15 minutes. Others may want to spend two one-hour sessions with God. Second, Corporate worship, going to church, 
can also count for one of your hours, but only if you go to church with a sense that you are meeting God, that your focus is on God. Too often, we spend much of our time in church services thinking about other things than God. Here are some tips for how to go to church well. Arrive early. Take time to focus on God before the service begins. Remind yourself over and over that God is the focus. When you get distracted, turn back to thinking about God. So, you may want to go to church and then schedule one or more blocks of time when you will give your attention to God. Suggested Ways to Spend Time with God The final exercise in the second book in this series, The Good and Beautiful Life, is about how to spend a day devotionally, with guidance from Madame Guyon. Keying off of her ideas, I offer the following suggestions for other ways to spend time with God. The following steps are offered not as rigid rules, but as suggestions. 1. Find a quiet, restful place to be alone. It should be a place where you feel comfortable and are relatively free from interruptions. 2. Breathe. It takes time to become present where we are. One of the things I like to do is simply breathe and pay attention to my breathing. It calms me and helps me focus. Sometimes I actually count my breaths and have found that somewhat, somewhere around 40, I am in a relaxed but concentrated state. 3. Say a prayer. I like to pray the Lord's Prayer or the doxology. The main thing is to remember that you are in the presence of God. 4. Praise. I like the phrase, God inhabits the praises of his people. Take a little time to write out a list of your blessings. You may have completed an exercise like this in the good and beautiful God. Then thank God for them. Expect to feel a lift in your spirit. 5. Read reflectively. You might want to open your Bible and read a short passage. I suggest no more than four or five verses. The Psalms to the Gospels are a good place to start. Others find a daily devotional helpful. I like reading a short passage from The Imitation of Christ. 6. Ponder. Spend some time thinking about what you have just read. Is there a message for you in it? What might God be saying to you in that passage or selection? 7. Ask and listen. Don't be afraid to speak to God directly. Ask God any questions you have, but don't expect an audible answer. Learning to discern the still, small voice of God is an acquired ability that takes time and practice. Sometimes God speaks in a quiet inner voice, and sometimes God speaks to me through a series of thoughts that come to mind. The key is to allow your heart to be exposed to God. Let God know how you're feeling. The Psalms are wonderful for this very reason. The psalmist is not afraid to let the anger or anguish, praise or thanksgiving be made known to God. 8. Journal It is helpful to write down your thoughts and feelings during these quiet times with God. Jot down your thoughts or questions in a journal. It helps crystallize what you're learning and offers a written record you will find valuable in the years to come. I hope this offers you some basic ideas about how to use your time. These eight steps can be done in 20 to 30 minutes or at a leisurely pace. It can take up to 45 minutes to an hour. Four Acts of Peculiarity Several years ago, I participated in an exercise in which I was to try to do one unselfish and unexpected act of kindness or generosity each day for 30 straight days. I really enjoyed the exercise. It forced me to think more about what I could do for other people, and it gave me the encouragement to actually carry them out. I found myself doing a lot of little things for people, taking someone's tray back in the cafeteria, 
and occasionally larger things, helping friends move. It also forced me to be creative because, believe it or not, doing one unexpected and unselfish act of kindness every day is harder than you might think. Fortunately, the person who created the exercise told us ahead of time that it would be hard, so at least we were not surprised. The only thing I did not like about it was precisely that problem. I found myself forcing my acts of kindness in places where it was not welcome or needed, and I found myself faking a bit. Is waving at a stranger an unexpected act of kindness? After a few years, I decided to find a more attainable, yet still transforming approach. Instead of one a day, I challenged myself to do four unselfish and unexpected acts of kindness or generosity each week. This really helped me because sometimes there is nothing to do, but on other days, three, four, three, four, but on other days, three, four opportunities, three or four opportunities may arise. The next thing I discovered was that I could also expand the exercise to include doing things that indicate I am maladjusted to this world. For example, if I choose not to buy something I do not need, I am showing I am maladjusted to the greed, materialism, and excess of this world. If I resist the temptation to treat people according to their social class, usually indicated by dress, and treat all people as equal to me and to one another, I am showing that this world is not my home. I belong to the kingdom of God. If I decide to slow down and avoid rushing, I am demonstrating that I am maladjusted to the culture of hurry I live in. By opening my experiment up to include these kinds of things, it really got interesting. I was intentionally doing things that I might otherwise not have done, and doing them with a sense that I am a citizen of another world. Kindness and generosity, to be sure, are peculiar activities of the highest kind, so I would like you to concentrate, especially this week, on planning four unselfish acts of kindness, acts of peculiarity, or acts of maladjustment. Here are some examples of the things I have enjoyed doing. 1. Ask for someone's car keys and take the car to a car wash or wash it by hand. 2. Rake the leaves or sweep the driveway of your neighbor. 3. Be intentional in conversation, inviting people to talk about their lives. Listening is a great gift. 4. Clean up the house or apartment without being asked assuming you share space with others. If not, you are doing a kind act to yourself. 5. Pay for the person behind you in the drive-thru. 6. Intentionally go to a place of business in a part of town that is struggling economically. 7. Let others go ahead of you in line. 8. Engage with people by saying, Hi, how are you today? And then wait for an answer. Don't just walk on.